Hi y'all, it's Jess and this is The Podling, a podcast that's exploring what linguistics looks like inside and out of the classroom, starting with our very own professors here at Western. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Armata about his research on the language biographies and attitudes of communities near the Western US-Mexico border. He also shares some advice on navigating the conference scene as an undergraduate student. In short, you can start slow. Have fun making your own research project out of exploring what you gravitate toward. And that's not only topics or questions, but also the presentation styles and career paths of the people you meet there. Thank you to Graham Blair for this episode's transcript, and thank you for being here. Now, on to the interview. so much for being here. It's awesome to get to talk to you. How has spring quarter been for you so far? Um, I think it's been a nightmare like for everybody else in terms of having to adjust to remote learning. But in some other ways, I think that students have really used it as a good opportunity to maybe try out more independent modes of learning, which is good. So I sometimes hear that um, students are able to work on material when they feel most ready so that if they're a morning person they're able to do things in the morning if they're like an evening night owl person usually academia doesn't allow them to work well in that modality but uh, Mm -hmm. with remote learning they are and so I, I hear some good things but it's also sort of frustrating to have to figure a lot of new things out yeah 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 especially with linguistics there are with any field but um, having TA'd a few classes, there are unique challenges we face with instructing on certain concepts and being able to very quickly introduce them in a class or touch on them or when certain questions pop up, just being able to change lanes and address something is tricky. So definitely, there are lots of things lost. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yes, of course. And what classes have you TA'd for? I have TA'd for 201 with Emily Curtis mm-hmm. and 321 and 310 with Anne. 321, that's syntax. Syntax, yeah, and linguistic analysis. Ah, mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, 310, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, Oh, that's right. You teach 310. That's right. Yes, I do. That's what I'm currently teaching. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I've taught 201 once. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a wonderful TA. I think the... All of my TAs have been really amazing, but yeah, for 310 is um, TAs do different things in that there's more one-on-one engagement, I suppose, with the students. Mm-hmm. But for 201, I don't know how I would have done it without a TA. I mean, that class is so massive that um, it was it was vital <laughs> that I that I had a TA for that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's very cool, and I like watching people learn new things and get excited about them. And mm-hmm. so, of course, I wanted to be able to have that one-on-one with every single student, and also there were 120 people, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's an interesting, but I I I sort of think of um, 
from the student perspective, a lot of t- a lot of times this is like the first course for a student when they come mm-hmm. to Western, and to be sitting in an auditorium of like 150 people and the first course that you're teaching is linguistics, which nobody gets to take in high school. And so it's a lot of mm-hmm. the stuff is brand new. And so to me, a lot of times it feels like from the student perspective, that's kind of what they envision when they decide to come to college is precisely that kind of course that in a huge lecture hall. And yeah. uh, But of course, things at Western don't always turn out to be that way. Like we actually are lucky that we're able to offer mostly smaller size courses. Yeah. Yeah. So... Absolutely, and pretty quickly within linguistics and yeah, in, in this oh, in linguistics right away, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it gets tight knit pretty fast, which is cool. Mm-hmm. So before we are too way off in the weeds, I would like to ask if you would introduce yourself, uh, your background, your roles at Western, uh, some topics that you teach in, or anything else you'd want to include. Yes, sure, absolutely. So I uh, came to Western in 2017. This was before the Department of Linguistics was officially a department. Mm -hmm. So I came into the Department of Modern and Classical Languages as a professor of Spanish linguistics. And uh, I'm affiliated faculty at the time with the linguistics program and now with the Department of Linguistics. So I teach roughly Well, it varies. Uh, So roughly, I teach two thirds of my courses in modern and classical languages, and then the other third in linguistics. And then in some academic years, it varies because like this coming year, I'll teach half of my teaching load uh, will be for modern and classical languages, and then the other half for the Department of Linguistics. And um, a third or half of my courses are in general linguistics, meaning, for example, like Linguistics 310, the linguistics analysis course, and then I usually teach a 400-level topics course, uh, mm-hmm. either on Romance languages or on Spanish linguistics. And then the second third of my courses that I teach here are courses in Spanish linguistics for Spanish and in Spanish, so the course on general Spanish linguistics, and also either a 400 level topics course on dialectology or language variation or a course on Spanish phonetics and phonology and then the last third of my teaching load is uh, courses on Spanish for heritage learners and that's also to some extent the subject of my research though not entirely but it is certainly the subject of my current research project which I focus on linguistic properties, uh, grammatical properties of the Spanish that is uh, spoken in the San Diego area. Uh, mm-hmm. So I look at both uh, San Diego and then right across from San Diego is the Mexican city of Tijuana, which is one of the largest border communities in the world. And um, and so then we get to do, and I say, I say we because I started this project at University of California, San Diego, mm-hmm. when I was a doctoral student there. And so luckily I was able to gather a very large corpus of spoken data on both sides of the border and also across two different generations, uh, so parents and children. And so, yeah, so we've been able to compile this corpus of what I would call border Spanish. And so then we're able to look at heritage Spanish, meaning uh, speakers of Spanish that were born and raised in the United States in contact with English as well as uh, immigrant speakers of Spanish that have been in the United States for more than 20 years or so, but they're still, um, so many of them are bilingual, but they're still very much in contact with both languages. And so a lot of really interesting issues, not only in terms of grammar, so I'm very interested in grammars in contact. And then so specifically uh, in the linguistic area is morphosyntax, 
and what kinds of changes we see as a result of language contact. But I'm also very interested in language attitudes and uh, generally variation as a result of immigration and as a result of language contact, as well as this idea of um, language history or uh, language experience, which is uh, it's, it's sort of like the linguistic autobiography of a person or the linguistic biography of a person. So what goes into, so w w basically what are the linguistic or the language experiences that sort of shape um, your language? And when I say language, I don't necessarily mean Spanish or English, but this general idea of um, you know what you use to communicate. Um, so roughly that's, uh, that's where my area of research is. More broadly speaking, I also look at like Romance languages, for example. So I'm very interested in, in Romance languages, also the area of morphosyntax and how um, these languages developed. I also did a little bit of study on um, Bantu languages, like African linguistics, when I was in graduate school, uh, as well as uh, some of the First Nations languages of Mexico. So collecting uh, data from speakers of languages, Bantu language like Gitonga and uh, Mexican language uh, such as Mixtec. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in those things. As linguists, I think we tend to not just focus on one thing, particularly in interdisciplinary departments like ours. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so we are lucky that we can sort of branch out and do different things. Yeah, I think that really speaks to, like you said, the uh, linguistic autobiography of a person and what goes into that. And yes. as we know, so many things play into that, not just like, here's the language that you you know grew up speaking or maybe some that you acquired later, but your cultural context and your family context and all of the things that are around you that shape your language and of course shape the language of all of those factors around you uh, mm -hmm. so yes and language attitudes is actually something that's really quite fascinating that i have been um researching a lot more recently because when i collected uh, this corpus of language in san diego um, i started to talk to people about how they felt about the language that they speak, specifically uh, Spanish. And uh, you get some really interesting and, and, and very uh, revealing uh, personal stories of, of people, not only when you ask them, how do you feel about the language that you speak, but also how do you feel about the language that people around you speak, and also the language that is spoken on the other side of the border. Uh, and so just sort of 20 miles south of here, we have another country, we have another variety of, of a language. I, I say here because I am presently located in San Diego. And so, um, and, and yet the attitudes that people have about language just because there's a different, uh, uh, it's a different country, there's an international border, uh, changed tremendously. Um, and I've been thinking about that a lot more. Uh, and of course, I mean, as a result of, of doing the uh, sort of the morphosyntactic analysis, at the same time, I was looking at the content of what exactly they were saying, which I found just as interesting. Hmm. 
not just how they were saying it, but also what they were saying. Yeah, what they were saying about the attitudes of. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Was there is there a standout、um, takeaway from that particular part?、Uh, sure. So there were several. So I mean, one of them was that people have ideas about language that when you ask them to provide an example, they may not be able to write. And so, for example, like if I were to say, if I were to ask people in Bellingham, Washington,、uh, do people in here in Bellingham sound different from people in Portland, Oregon?、Uh, they might say yes,、mm-hmm. just because. There's a geographical distance, and then if I say, well, like how, or can you give me an example? And so maybe they're able to give a few examples, and then as a linguist, you think, well, that's not enough to really call it a, like a huge different way. Yeah.、Uh, and so, so then the way that people perceive that they speak differently or that they sound differently doesn't always match、um, a reality.、Um, however, if you dig a little bit deeper and you ask. Why you know this? Why do you think that you sound different, or、um, you know, in what ways do people sound different over there than they do over here? And I'm not longer talking about Bellingham versus Portland, but you know, in this case now, San Diego versus Tijuana.、Mm-hmm. And then you start to see that a lot of people are projecting ideas about language onto people, and I found that aspect fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. My instinct is when asked. The Bellingham and Portland example. I'm imagining English speakers in this case.、Mm-hmm. I can imagine that most of the examples provided would be lexical, like right. Yes, and and only a few. I mean, people are not、mm-hmm. very good about、um, you know saying like, well, there are like, where do I start? Like nobody ever says that. There's they maybe they can think of four or five things that people say differently. And, yeah, and so a lot of these attitudes actually have to do not what you know.、Uh, How language is actually changing, but how you feel about people, and、yeah. I always found that fascinating. So that's that's a more recent thing that I've been getting into. That's such an interesting thing to be looking into, and especially once, of course, that it involves bilingualism or multilingualism.、Yeah. The attitudes there, I can only imagine, just get really, really interesting. The things that people oh, yes. say. Oh yes, certainly, yeah, definitely. Uh, so you say you've been interested in that for a while. I'm wondering, <laughs> what is a while? When did you get into linguistics in the first place? Um, so a while means ten years ago. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so about ten years ago. No, I didn't get into linguistics ten years ago. I mean, I, I was an undergraduate major in linguistics,、uh, and I, the way that I got into it was I, I was actually an English major,、uh, mm-hmm. so I really like language and. I needed a as an undergraduate student. I needed a、uh, social science elective in order to not in order to graduate, but I hadn't fulfilled that requirement by my senior year.、Mm-hmm. And then I saw this course linguistics that was offered, and I took it. And then I realized that that's what I wanted to do. So after I took my first intro to linguistics course, so I decided to、uh, then finish my English major and then stay so that I could complete a linguistics、uh, major. And so、mm-hmm. the way that I completed my linguistics major is probably similar to a lot of Western students who、um, find linguistics late in their academic、uh, undergraduate career. So I found it in my last year, and so I basically had to take all the linguistics courses that were offered without any regard to what I liked and what I disliked. And so there was really no pattern to the courses that I took. I had courses on acquisition, and then another course on advanced syntax, and then. Uh, sociolinguistics course, and then 
another course on, uh, I don't even know, uh, but um, a lot of really random courses because I just needed to get my bachelor's in linguistics. But I think the advantage of that is just that it, um, it, it just allowed me to sample a lot of these uh, different areas of linguistics. But I, uh, as an undergrad, I didn't really feel like I went in depth. And then about 10 years ago, when I went into my doctorate program at University of California, San Diego, um, then that's when I, it's, it's not that that's when I really got into linguistics, but that's when I finally had not only a plan, but where I started to uh, approach it from a more focused stance and not so much from this is just something very cool. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's when I, I, I didn't get to do undergraduate research, but then when I was a graduate student, then I started looking into linguistics as an area of research and um, collecting data and doing analysis and um, uh, writing short papers and then longer papers and then um, going to conferences. Um, and so, yeah, so I would say um, about 10 years ago, that's when this all started. Nice. And now you're here. I am. So the variety of classes that you mentioned taking, um, yeah. you mentioned advanced syntax and acquisition and just a sprinkling of different things, but mm -hmm. not with a lot of patterning. That variety stands out to me because it mm -hmm. feels like the variety that we're starting to have in yes. our linguistics department, which is very cool to see. And something that I've heard from a lot of professors is that variety was not always available to them, but now they are seeing more and more in linguistics programs in different schools that that is becoming more commonplace as you know there are different things that people are focusing on that they're branching out into. And so with that seeming pretty similar, I'm wondering if there's anything, any changes, any standout changes that you've noticed in the field since you'd entered it and from then until now, um, be it in the higher ed institutions themselves or in conference or presentation spaces or in research spaces? Yes, absolutely, certainly. And so, I mean, to me, one of the most exciting changes that I've seen recently, and including this year as a difficult a year as it's been, is mm -hmm. being able to attend conferences virtually. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think that undergraduate students should try to do that if they can. I think uh, to be able to attend a, a conference uh, virtually and not have to travel and not have to pay for it, or I mean, you can pay for it, but the student rate tends to be low. Um, I think that's really valuable. Also, the amount of, uh, with everything being online, the amount of um, access to information and materials that students have uh, is just growing exponentially. And so undergraduate students really um, can benefit a lot from uh, just being very, very proactive. And um, I mean, it used to be that even 10 years ago, you had to go to talks or posters, presentations, and maybe you emailed the researcher and you asked them to send you a PDF of their poster or of their paper, uh, or if you are lucky, they might post it on their website. And now you can find all of those things and you can reach out to people very quickly. And uh, there's no shortage of articles that you can access. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that one of the biggest changes that I've seen is just how by having a lot of things be virtual, uh, it has opened up the world to a lot of undergraduate students in a way that uh, maybe it was mostly accessible to graduate students, even uh, 
10 years ago. Um, also, the other thing goes with what you were mentioning, which is that being able to have access to more linguistics courses. I mean, we see that at Western, but um, I think more universities are offering a wider variety of linguistics courses. And that's a, that's also been a very positive change, um, I think. And the fact that there's now uh, a lot of blogs, for example, about linguistics. And so people are also thinking about linguistics and writing about linguistics, not only in uh, in an academic or in academic circles, but we also see those discussions happening in places like social media, mm-hmm. uh, as well as um, blogs and whatnot. And so the fact that we are taking linguistics out of the classroom and seeing it outside of the classroom in our everyday lives, um, I think that's also a change that's very encouraging. Yeah, yeah, that has been such a cool thing to see, especially <laughs> I can speak for myself. I had encountered so many things that would be considered like linguistic questions or thoughts Mm -hmm. uh, in different places, even from like middle school grammar classes when I was like, I hate this, but I love this, but I hate it. I don't know why to, you know, online social spaces, social media, people questioning things about why their language is the way that it is or why they behave the way they do in their language. And I was like, that's so cool. Anyway, yes, moving on to absolutely. whatever else I'm going to do. Yeah, um, so certainly. having the name to that concept, I think, is I also think is a really awesome and uplifting change. Yeah, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, we don't, for example, like if you read a novel or if you uh, if you watch a Netflix series or uh, uh, if you go to a film and you there are spaces where you can discuss that uh, that where you don't have to do it in a classroom setting and using an academic tone, right? But mm-hmm. um, with language, a lot of times uh, we haven't really um, uh, thought about how we have those discussions or those conversations outside of an academic setting. And so, um, but I see that we're doing a lot more of that now, um, particularly online. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, you don't need to be a, a media studies or a film studies uh, major in order to be able to find, to, to have these discussions, or you, you don't just have to be taking that class. And I, I like that in linguistics is the same way that we are, you know, you don't, you don't have to be a linguist to do linguistics um, or to discuss language and talk about linguistics. So the fact that more people are able to have these uh, informal conversations, um, yeah, I, I, I see that as very encouraging too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that you brought up the way that the conference, I don't know how to describe it, kind of that realm has changed because of conferences happening remotely. And that that's also true for me where I had not been to any linguistics conferences up until this year. And I definitely like interacting with people, but I think it can still be an intimidating space to enter as an undergraduate student. So I'm wondering, what would you say to undergraduate students who are interested in attending conferences or even presenting as undergraduate students at those conferences, but they're kind of intimidated by it? Yeah, so I I did not go to a conference until I was a graduate student. And um, I suppose I was 
overconfident at the time because I felt really good about my presentation and then looking back I don't think it was that great but um, the fact that I had the I was given the chance to present even though I mean looking back to me now is oh I don't think that was a great presentation but it was interesting material right and there was value in it and the fact that somebody else saw that and say okay yeah let's give this grad student a chance to present at our conference and so I presented and, uh, and there was value in what I was uh, presenting about, absolutely, of course, even if I wasn't quite there in terms of um, you know, arriving at like a big discovery or a big analysis. And when you go to conferences, a lot of times you realize that many people are also um, presenting very interesting aspects of language, uh, even if they're not fully articulated uh, the best way. And, well, that's why you write the paper uh, later, um, and that's why you present it at a conference first. It's sort of a testing ground. But I was mm -hmm. the most exciting part about my very first conference as a grad student was not the fact that I was presenting, but it was the fact that I was attending all of these different presentations. And so I would say to an undergraduate student that if you can, you should go to a conference as an attendant and sit into as many presentations as that you find interesting, as many as you can. So just block out the two, three days that they last. If you don't have money, go to a regional conference if you can. So in the Pacific Northwest, we have uh, we have some in Seattle, University of Washington will some and will mm -hmm. some will sometimes uh, host um, University of British Columbia as well. Mm -hmm. um, University of Oregon even down as that, and the Washington State's uh, university system too. Uh, so find uh, regional conferences that are within distance that you can get to and attend, even if you can only go for a day, attend as many sessions as you find interesting. And I would say keep note or make note of what kinds of things you like and what kinds of things spark your interest and, and try to think about why and um, not only in terms of the subject, right, the subject matters, like, oh, I really like that this person is presenting on doing research on social media and the way that people use language in social media and so forth, but also think about um, what is it that you like about the person that presented it and uh, what is it that... Uh, how does this relate to your own experience and do you see yourself doing that kind of... Uh, research in the future and so forth and so to try to project yourself in different ways and to not only be a passive listener at the at these presentations but also to try to figure out if you're an undergraduate student to try to figure out if this is research that you would like to do and to really question why why this presentation is really speaking to you is it just because it's something you like which is perfectly fine so go read more articles about that or if this is a kind of research that maybe you see yourself doing or if this is uh, a type of class that you would uh, like to take and so for students to use conferences also as in a, as a space of personal exploration um, that would be a a really important piece of advice um, not everything that you like is something that you should be doing um, but mm -hmm. as as research right it's 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 sort of impossible but it can really help you find your focus um, if you really question the things that you like and the things that speak to you and why uh, you might really get at the kinds of things that you want to do mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm.
turn the conference into a research project of its own while you're yes, there. Yes, like a, a pers- <laughs> uh, exactly a personal uh, <laughs> yeah, exploration, so to speak. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely think paying attention to the things that you pay attention to is mm-hmm. such a good compass for yeah, certainly. figuring out what to spend your time on because you already spend your time there, whether you realize it or not. Um, yes, because uh, there were many things that I found fascinating at conferences and I realized that the reason that I found fascinating was because I liked them and I wanted to find out more about them. But then I also realized that's not the kind of research that I wanted to do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh and that I couldn't, that I didn't, I didn't really have the, the the background to be able to do those things. Nonetheless, I still found them very, very interesting. And so I made a note that these were kinds of things that I wanted to find out more about, even if I didn't necessarily have the tools to to be able to do research in that area. Um, but then that allowed me to think of well, what is it? What is the kind of research that I that I actually want to do because a lot of things will seem interesting to um, to an undergraduate student, um, but there are only so many things that you can do. Yes, unfortunately, yeah. yes, yeah. you can combine lots of them, but there is there are limits of time and human energy. <laughs> and yeah, and also your your attention is your attention and your energy and your time are very valuable, and you can't possibly dedicate it to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so you don't want to spend months going into an area that thinking that you're going to do research in that area um, when you're not. Um, I would also say another thing is um, if there is a researcher, if you attend a presentation that you like, um, find out what you can about the person that is presenting. So what university are they at? What what courses do they teach? If they're a graduate student, if they're um, if they're a faculty member, uh, mm. what other articles have they published, uh, what school they went to, and so forth. Um, and I think it's really interesting, if, especially if you're thinking of continuing with linguistics beyond the undergraduate years, to see these people as professional in their field, right? And so uh, w- what is it that they do when they're not um, uh, when they're not presenting at the conference? What else are they doing? Um, and mm-hmm. eventually, you know, once you have... Um, once you have a better understanding of their career and their uh, research, then you can reach out to them and say, I attended your talk and I thought it was really great uh, or and, and so forth. And they may or may not respond, but hopefully they will. But uh, you, you've made a connection and, and I think mm-hmm. that's really valuable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That also is, I think, a wonderful compass. Again, just mm-hmm. the finding the people who are doing the thing you want to be doing and being very vocal about, hey, I also really want to do this thing. Yes, yeah. Hello, people who are out there. I would like to do this too, please. (laughs) Yes, of course, yeah. Put it out there into the world that that, um, this is what speaks to you. Mm -hmm. Staying in the vein of research and it being presented... What are some under-researched topics or areas you think could use some attention um, as broad or as narrow as comes to mind? Yeah, so there are, I mean, it's hard to, it's a difficult question to answer because the fact that they're under-researched probably says that we don't know too much about them. But that doesn't mean that there aren't areas that um, are already being explored, but that need to be explored um, a little bit more. I would say that for me personally, in the area of Spanish linguistics specifically, 
I think that we need to look at different populations. If we're looking at, for example, Spanish in the United States, which is one of the areas that I research, and our research, of course, if you think about Los Angeles, New York, uh, so Los Angeles, the work of um, Carmen Silva Corvalan, for example, uh, New York, the work of Anacelia Centella, and then in Chicago, the work of like Kim Potowski. And then um, there's also other great people like uh, Jackie Toribio Almeida um, that have also been looking at um, languages in contact in these major uh, areas. But there are areas such as, for example, like central Washington and eastern Washington, where we also have a lot of these communities. And so I'm very interested in areas of uh, geographical areas or um, demographic areas, uh, groups of people that have not been always studied or populations that have not always uh, been studied, uh, not necessarily geographic populations, but maybe also in terms of um, you know, other differences, like other social or sociodemographic uh, differences. So looking at immigrant communities in, in, in just maybe parts of the country where we've never thought of, right? Um, so it's, mm -hmm. it's easy to think of uh, places like Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, and so forth for like Spanish in contact with uh, English. But there are many other populations that a lot of us haven't thought of. Um, there are different age groups that we haven't thought of. There are different experiences, again, going back to this idea of language experiences that uh, we haven't always um, thought about. And so, yeah, so that's that. I, I suppose that would be my answer to, to think beyond the major um, centers of, or the major areas of um, language contact and study the kinds of populations that have been understudied. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're so right that it's maybe hard to come up with mm -hmm. or hard to pinpoint whose language might be understudied because it has not been studied. Yes. But I think that's a really excellent way to start to find some of those communities and mm -hmm. um, groups of speakers thinking about who is there, who has always been there, who has been there for a long time and just hasn't necessarily stood out as like, Oh yeah, wait. They're doing they're doing something interesting and different with language than everything else studied in the area. Like mm -hmm. maybe might be a tricky way to find those people, but yeah. still absolutely. For example, when we think of uh, this idea of language experience that I was talking about earlier, um, growing up in a I'm not using myself as an example because I did not grow up in Washington State, but for example, the experience of growing up in a Spanish speaking household in uh, Los Angeles has to be very different from growing up in a Spanish-speaking household in um, Mount Vernon, Washington, right? Just 30 miles south of Bellingham. Uh, mm -hmm. Why? Well, because you're exposed to a lot more Spanish and you're exposed to a larger Spanish-speaking community in Los Angeles than you would be in Mount Vernon, Washington. And so what are some of the differences there and 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 so forth? And, um, and so that's the, those are sort of the types of innovations or the types of um, questions that I'm interested in, these experiences that maybe we haven't uh, quite thought about. Yeah. And those experiences are just so rich with insight into... Yeah, absolutely. Like you said earlier, how people feel about their own language and other people's mm -hmm. language, and they're very reflective how to think about my language. And so, yes. yeah, yeah. Well, 
Dr. Mata, this has been such an awesome conversation, and I'm so appreciative of you for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. I've got two questions to wrap up with. Oh, sure, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. The first is, if you could bring back a class or create a class on any topic, as broad or as narrow as you want, what would it be? Oh, I don't know. I think I... (laughs) I suppose I just wish that I could teach some of the courses that I already teach uh, just every term, for example. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, we can't really clone ourselves and, uh, <laughs> and teach everything. So I would say that a course that would be very interesting to teach at Western, uh, particularly for undergraduate linguistics, would be a project-based course in which... Um, some kind of capstone course in which at the end uh, students would take on a research project of their own and that would be their own project for a quarter and of course I mean this already exists uh, in the honors program right Mm -hmm. Uh, so we already it's not that I really want to create this new course because uh, people are already doing a lot of work in that area Um, but if we were able to have something similar in linguistics for students that were not part of the honors program and that maybe didn't have access to that. Mm-hmm. And it would be uh, something that maybe not everybody would want to take, but it would allow students to explore an area or questions about language and about linguistics in a way that felt comfortable to them, but that was also part of their own um, experience. So maybe not so much looking at questions that other people have had, but looking more at what kinds of questions do you have about a specific language topic and uh, how can you write a short paper about it or a blog post or create a a video or so yeah so a project-based course basically where students choose their own linguistics project and are mentored or guided for a quarter and then come up with your own question about language and let's help you answer it or that sort of thing. Let's guide you through the process. Yeah, I love that. I love that you mentioned the variety of projects that it is, you know, you're, you've got questions, you're doing research, but project is not just limited to write a paper, maybe make mm-hmm. a poster or design a right. presentation, but it could be, like you said, a blog post or a video or a podcast or mm-hmm. something that gets distributed or, you know, some, like a like a lesson plan even of for, course, yeah. you know, maybe elementary school students or... Mm-hmm university class. I love, yeah, the possibility of variety there. And I think like you'd said earlier, because linguistics is entering more of, it's more in the public eye, it's becoming more in the public eye and being more discussed by people outside of academia. I think that's really valuable to learn how to produce those kinds of projects that are for wider consumption or for consumption and just different non-higher ed spaces. So I think oh, that yeah. sounds fantastic. And also that it would be mm-hmm. outside of the honors program. Um, I came in as a tra- transfer student, so I mm-hmm. don't know that the honors program was available to me or mm-hmm. I was not aware of it at least. So yeah, that kind of project-based, um, very self-directed but mentored research kind of program mm-hmm. for someone in that position sounds fantastic or for people who don't realize that they want to they would have wanted to be in the honors program yeah i love that so much that's an awesome idea for a class yeah so hopefully um in the future we'll be able to offer something like that yeah sure 
Yeah. Would love to see it. And for the last question, yes. what is a non-work, non-academic accomplishment that you are proud of? And that's as large or as small scale as you would like. Non-work, non-academic? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the problem with academic life is that it's very all-encompassing. So um, It's true. <laughs> right. Uh, I would say that... Um, I've been able to maintain lots of friendships and personal connections with people in spite of how busy academic life and how all-encompassing it can be. And um, yeah, so I'm not sure that that's an accomplishment, but it is something that takes work. And it is something that um, when I'm done grading papers, when I'm done rating papers, when when I just don't want to think about conference presentations and research and whatnot, I've never really felt like I had no connections with people outside of that. And so I think that maintaining a lot of personal connections and friendships uh, with friends and family has been really important to me. And um, yeah, certainly. And with students too, I mean, students that I stay in contact with, and uh, we don't really talk about stuff that is language related. They just talk about their lives and whatnot. And so um, mm-hmm. I think that personal connection, uh, we don't think of that as achievement because it's not tangible, but um, it is certainly just as important, I think. Yeah, I so agree. And I was at the beginning thinking when you had said, not sure if that's an accomplishment, I was like, I, that absolutely is. But you right. said it first. It's maybe not the most measurable thing, but I think in a lot of ways, we can still feel it. We can still be very proud of having done that because it's hard. It can be so hard, especially being involved in like very embedded in academics, which is also, Mm -hmm. it can be a very um, secluded space or very separate from certain things, even if you are doing work in certain communities like like as part of your academic work, it can still be really difficult. So yeah, way to go. That is an <laughs> accomplishment. That's an awesome one. I love that that's what came to mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially now this year, those things have become more and more important. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, lots of time for reevaluating how we make those connections and how we maintain yes. them and the importance of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you again so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And thank you all so much for listening. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye.